Um, hello and welcome to The Breakfast Club. I'm here with the fabulous Susan Calvin. Um, we are in Pandora's Kitchen in Norwich. Lovely breakfast. Yes, we've got a lovely breakfast. Can you remember what your breakfast was? It was the, the, pan, the Pandora. The Pandora? Uh, it, was, it was basically the full English, I would suggest. So, so they do do a full English. Yes, I saw it. It looked enormous. It looked enormous. I just thought maybe I might have a nap later. So I didn't, I didn't want to have a full stomach for that. No, I didn't want to have for my pre-show nap. No. Hello, I'm Doug Siegel. And welcome to The Breakfast Club. A podcast where we take comedians and other famous people and bribe them into opening up over the breakfast of their choice. It is, and whenever people say, my life would be slightly easier if I moved to London, but it wouldn't be better. your lifestyle wouldn't be better. It's better to live in Glasgow and travel and have a lovely house. I see my view of travelling when I do is a tax on the lifestyle I'm able to have. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's similar. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's fine. I think sometimes the difficulty is when I'm booked for tour dates, most comedians live in London. And so no one ever considers how far away things are. So my lovely promoter has asked me to go somewhere and I looked up and it would take me nine and a half hours on the train. And you go, well, I do, but, but I wouldn't drive... That's going to be 15 yes. hours. I'm not going to... That's a good point. The problem is, if you want to stay cheap in a Premier Inn, they're mostly in the city centre. And then what you have to do is find parking. And then, you know, and so... And it's easier just to get the train. And then, as I did yesterday, fall asleep, snoring. It's so obvious. The last time I saw, because I'd rather stupid never again, built a show which hinged on this enormous pride. But it did nothing, it was just a prop. Yeah. Um, it, was, yeah. it was the Brainmatizer 3000, which right. was a deliberately Heath Robinson looking chair. And I wrote the show around the prop. So I had to have a van. And a van's a whole new level of nightmare and so on. It's one of those really interesting things when people say, how do you write your shows? I always think about the tour. And what I think about is, having toured before, some places don't have a very good sound system. So if you've got a show that has projectors and blah, 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 you get into trouble because mm. I, I don't know about you, I tour, I don't have a support act. I tour myself. I, can't one. <laughs> I, I don't have a tour manager. I have to sort this out myself. So if I turn up and they don't have a screen for me, they don't have, it's me. Exactly right. So I write the shows. The best training I ever had as a comedian was working for some promoters in Scotland and England, where you would turn up to a gym hall. Yes. And there was no microphone and no lights. And if I could say anything to younger comedians, it's write a show that you can just do. Yes, you're so right. That you can just do. I'd love to do a PowerPoint show. My God, I'd love to do one of those shows. But I know when I turn up to some of the places I'm going to, that they want to have a power cable, then you have to carry it all with you. Then if it doesn't work, it's stressful. My show this year doesn't even have a single sound cue. Nothing. Oh, I'm so envious. See, I did that on my most recent show. I decided what I'd do is I'd write a show where I didn't need projection, first one I'd toured, 
um, because of that very nightmare. And also, where although I needed sound cues, I found a way to operate them myself on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which in a fairly foolproof way, it's all fat. And that was great. And then I kind of had this because obviously what I do is a mixture of comedy and mind reading. Yeah. I had this stupid idea, which then involved. This I mean, all that happens is I say all that happens is at the beginning of the show, someone is randomly selected, and they just think of six. Lottery ticket numbers. And at the end of the show, there it is or not. It's not simply, it's because I'm, it's about happiness and how money doesn't matter. And sort of throw away like the beginning, which leads to it. Uh, a joke about the lottery and winning it. And hanging on the stage the whole time is a, is a bottle with very clearly a lottery ticket in it. Yeah. At the end of the show, the person comes on stage, we, we sort of I put them in like uh, safety goggles and stuff. They smash the bottle and the number on the ticket. Which is, which sounds, I hope, impressive, but yep. seems simplistic. And it's the most complex thing I've ever done in my life. And it requires four hours of setup before every show. So I kind of, I'd have this lovely show, so easy to do. And then through my hubris of wanting this perfect ending, yeah. I shut myself in the pool. <laughs> I always wondered about, you know, Vicky Stone? Uh -huh. I remember she did a tour, I think it was called Instrumental or something like that, and she had a bloody baby grand piano, and you think, and I, I couldn't help but, I remember at the fringe every day I saw wheeling stuff in, and I was like, my god, that's, that is commitment. I can just, and I mean, part of it's cost, mm -hmm. uh, I know I, I seem like a, a very successful comedian, but it's a there's a bottom line. I, I understand exactly. Of, you know how I, much I, you I can earn. People, people realise how difficult it is to make money for touring. Yes, you know, even if you're selling. I mean, I played that venue as part of my tour. I mean, it happens to be the closest venue to me on the tours I've done. And I know that if you sell that out, the sort of ticket prices that you charge and I charge. The money you make isn't extraordinary. Not especially no. when you then factor in. Your, your costs and your development costs and the marketing and stuff—it's—it's it's less than a corporate gig, you uh, Yes, it certainly is. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I put up my tour dates, and people go, "Why aren't you coming to X?" And uh, when you come to Australia, um, mainly because that's a, a lot of money to yes. go for. I don't know if anyone's going to come exactly to the right. gig. And fundamentally, this pays—this is what pays mine. My mortgage. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't know if my background as a lawyer means I I'm all over the financials, the business aspect of what I'm doing, because I like visibility and I like to sure. see what the costings are. Yeah. It's not that it's not fun, but I mean, primarily this is. It's your living, right? Yeah. Totally understand that. I wonder if the reason for that is that I come from a corporate background. Yeah, maybe. So it could be. Yeah. It could be. I do envy people that have never had proper jobs. I think they must live a, a charmed existence with none of this problem. No, I, I don't because I think then they have no idea. So I did the fringe this year myself. No producers. Oh, really? Because I worked out how we could do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think my business background means that I can look at the contracts, I can look at everything and do it myself. Yeah. And I also know when someone's ripping me off. Uh -huh. So when someone comes to me and says it's going to cost X, Y, and Z, I go, it, it absolutely will not cost that. <laughs> I can tell why people like working with me. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think it's actually a positive thing because comedy, we have to make people laugh, but if this is your job, 
it's much more than that. Absolutely. It's much more than that. Um, and I think it's part of that whole... The comedians I admire the most are some of the ones with the sharpest business brains. Because fundamentally, if I don't make money at this, I can't do it as a job. Exactly right. Exactly right. The best, the best that then becomes an expensive hobby. And I did that for five years. Yes, well, it was a very expensive hobby for five years. <laughs> did you come up by researching the kind of traditional Yes, I started. Uh, this is my tenth year, so I must have started in two thousand and six. Open spot at Red Raw at the stand, as so many of us have. The stands were incredible. So in Scotland, there's a, a club called the Stand Comedy Club. It used to be run by a man called Tommy Shepherd before he left to become an MP. Of all the things. Thank you so much for doing the exposition because normally when the podcast, I have to do what I call an info loom to fill no, this stuff. Sorry. No, 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 no. Bless you. You're saving me editing work. <laughs> so uh, they had clubs in Glasgow and Edinburgh, and uh, they've now got one in Newcastle as well, if you're around. And they are. Uh, were and continue to be very supportive of Scottish acts, uh, very supportive of women as well in comedy. Um, and so I did fives there, and then they give you a ten at the weekend, and then they see if you compare. So for the first, I would say, four or five years, my career was primarily based around the stand. And I trained by watching, there was a woman called Jane Mackay, who was a compare, Susan Morrison, Frankie Boyle, you know, some incredible acts. Uh, and I did all of those gigs. I did Peebles and Ardrossan and Air and then came down. Then and it's smaller. It's smaller now than it was when I started. Max Starr was running gigs. Alan Anderson was running gigs. There were a lot more gigs. And then I came down to Manchester and did the Frog and Bucket and you know all of those. So I I, I did exactly. My career is textbook. <laughs> five, five or six years of struggle, absolutely. Yeah. Five or six years of struggle, years of struggle at the fringe, and then finally, after ten years, it all works out. Uh, I kind of, I, I can remember you first hitting my radar. I think in two thousand and two thousand and eleven. Yeah. That's when I, when I first became the fringe. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I think kind of. From that point, it's been an absolute pleasure and delight to see you just grow and grow and grow. I mean, from the outside looking in, I always remember my first TV appearance in 2006 with uh, Claire Balding. I remember somebody on the staff, one of the producers there, saying, we're grooming Claire, we think she has the time to be one of the, the major flagship people for the BBC, and that clearly happened. And I look at you and I can see the same thing. Whether that's somebody intentionally doing something, mm. I can see the same thing happening with you. But you I, have yeah. that talent and ability, and I can see that. that I think the thing is that I remember meeting. I don't know who listens to your Who's going to listen to this? Is this going to be comedians? Or... I think it's the general public. Which general is public. Hence, had you not done the exposition of that the way okay. does, I would have. <laughs> so, um, here's an example. Sometimes when people watch. Sarah Millican, Kevin Bridges on the television, they think, oh, that's just happened. And it hasn't just happened. So I remember meeting, I think it must have been one of my first years at the Finch, 2006, must have been, Miranda Hart. And she was doing the sitcom trials and had been doing, it's a thing called the sitcom trials where you try out sitcoms live on stage. And she'd been doing Miranda for a couple of years. 
So when people, when Miranda happened and everyone went, oh, amazing. Yes. She was in crappy basement in the fringe doing that for and she did Miranda Hart's joke shop on radio two or four and she did hyperspace she's been going for one hell of a long time and it, it, it frustrates me that people don't don't see the bill because there's kind of I think a critical mass where you become visible yes I think um, and it's so sad that I think quite frequently there's some amazing work that's been done leading up to that. I mean, it's interesting to hyperspace. I thought she was extraordinary in hyperspace. Yeah. Completely stole that show. Yeah. From some, from quite a big place. Kevin Elden, yeah, yeah. I would say. Yeah. And I still think she was the best thing in it. Yes. Um, yes. Which is quite a statement, I yes. think. Yes. Yes. Um, and I just think, how many people are colossal fans of Miranda and the, the, the midwife show? Yeah. Have you even really seen that one? I think the thing is that we exist as comedians, as entertainers, yeah. in different bubbles yeah so people listen to me on radio 4 might not have seen me on the apprentice you're fired might not have seen me in dead boss where i was acting with sharon horgan may not have read my book and what happens on tour and this is the most difficult but amazing part of touring is all of those people arrive in the same room Yes. Oh gosh, that's a lovely way of looking at it. It's almost like tribes coming yes. together, isn't it? And what you have to do is you have to try and do a show that everyone is going to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a strange balancing act. Because for some people I'm the lady who wrote about depression, for some people I'm the lady who's been acting, for some you know, and so it's a but that's the way I think that gives me great pleasure. So when I look out on the audience last night in Norwich it's not necessarily just the traditional Radio 4 audience. There's lots of very different kind of people. The comedians I admire the most, so Joe Brand, I, I adore. Because she writes sitcoms, she does stand-up, she does books, she does everything. And I think that's the way to be. I think portfolio careers are the only yeah. way now. Particularly, yeah, I think, I think it's interesting. I, I'm going to to put a marker in the sand now that I suspect will come back and bite me at something. I think you may be one of the last few comedians that achieved prominence via a traditional route of TV. I think TV is is failing now. We're rapidly moving towards self-selecting media. Yeah. Which is fabulous. The difficulty with it is that you discover stuff. Yeah. Yeah? Because it's selecting. So you select what you know. Yeah. Um, and I think you may be one of the last people to achieve profit via working away within, I mean, obviously you work with many media, yeah. but, but with TV being a vehicle for um, Yeah. And I think the way you combat that is portfolio. I think that you're already there mm-hmm. and doing mm-hmm. it. It's magnificent. I always remember uh, way back when, when I started in comedy, there were several big clubs you wanted to work for. So the stand yeah. was one, uh, the comedy store was another. The Frog and Bucket and Jonglers. And uh, Jonglers was always a very different type of club. It was, you know, <laughs> stag party, same party. Yes. Uh, I never really wanted to work for them, but they paid yes, money. Yes, they paid the most money, yes. Now, I remember there was a comedian I knew who essentially only worked for Jonglers. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was like having a day job in a lot of ways. And then Jonglers went down the Swanee, mm-hmm. and basically he was in real trouble. And since then, I've always tried to make sure that I have several different forms of income 
so that if I get fired from a show, if I fall out of favour, as we all do, I'm not reliant on one particular thing. Taking that step back and, and curated your own career. Absolutely. In that way. Absolutely. That's fabulous. It's essential. And so this year, next year, I've said to my agent, I want to do some more acting work so that we build up that part of what I'm doing. So, and have everything going at the one time. And it's a difficult juggling act, but it's, gosh, it's lovely. Yes. To do lots and lots of different things. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you find the? F- I, I was having a talk with someone the other day. I, I've been. I haven't gone every year to, to the fringe, but most years mm-hmm. I've been to the fringe, in sketch shows and stand-up shows and lots and lots of stuff. And I was there this year. I was at the Pleasance for the first time, which was a very, very pleasurable experience. Yes. Actually, I thought they were very nice. But it's a funny old place now. Do you, do you still enjoy going to the fringe? I think the best way to answer that is to say I'm not going next year. Right, okay. <laughs> right. This year, and I'm picking my words carefully, this year was my worst experience at the fringe. I didn't enjoy anything at all about it. Oh my goodness. Except the time that I was on stage. Oh my but god. nothing. The rest of it was horrendous and stressful. The Breakfast Club. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Is there some toast? Yeah. I like making I like making a sandwich. Thanks very much. The toast lust is upon us. No, I'm fine. Interesting. Uh, I'd like some brown, please. Yeah. At some point. Yuck, brown. Yuck. At some point, I shall chew on the conversation. Thank you. To the subject of breakfast, which is the flimsy excuse for this we're doing show. This, right? <laughs> yep. And we all come back to ketchup, but what you were saying was, was, was what we were saying with the about the fringe. Yeah. I feel a little bit like the fringe has changed so much. It's become so expensive and the things that amazing thank you very much thank you very much it's a it's a very curious thing i think the value the value of the fringe is still there but the pre- I, I mean, I lived in a hermetically sealed chamber. I go into mm-hmm. my show and go home so I don't get upset by the wow. fringe. Wow. You know, and I don't read reviews and I hardly go out. Um, and to a certain extent, because you don't make a lot of money, you, you think, yeah. why am I doing this? If this is what my life is for a month, why am uh-huh. I doing it? And there's still part of me, I think, because it's down the road from me and it's the fringe. Mm-hmm. Most people have at least heard of the end of the fringe. Or, to give it its correct title, the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. But unless you've visited it, and sometimes then even not, it's impossible to understand its vast scale and complexities. Let's start with a very brief history. In 1947, a group of empresarios led by the artistic director of the Glyndeborg Opera, Rudolf Bing, launched an international arts festival in the spirit of rebuilding culture and international relationships in the wake of the Second World War. This Edinburgh International Festival, which ran in August 1947 and every August since, was a relatively small affair that was and remains very much focused on high art, opera, ballet, classical music. That first year, eight completely unconnected theatre groups all had the same independent thought process, which was, hey, if there's this big festival going on that's going to attract thousands of paying punters, we should find a venue in Edinburgh at the same time and make Bad dollar, you get me, as the young folks say. And did just that. 
totally uninvited. They came back again uninvited the following year, and a Scottish journalist dubbed them the Festival Fringe. The Fringe continued to grow every year, becoming so large that in 1958 the Festival Fringe Society was set up. The Society provided information to artists wanting to bring a show, published a programme for the Fringe and created a central box office for it. By 1981, the Fringe had grown from eight theatre companies running a single show every day for just over two weeks to around 500 shows a day. By then, comedy was no longer a rarity on the Fringe, and the launch that year of the Perrier Comedy Award, which was won by a Cambridge Footlights, comprised of a cast that included Stephen Fry, Emma Thompson, Hugh Laurie and Tony Slattery, triggered a comedy explosion. That's a comedy explosion. I regret nothing, I tell you, nothing! By 2016, it had grown to a festival lasting the entirety of August, with around 320 venues running multiple shows a day, around 3,400 individual shows, creating around 85,000 performances, and over 2.3 million tickets are issued. Every conceivable space in the city is rented out as a venue, with many large multi-venues dominating the festival such as the Gilded Balloon, the Pleasance, the Assembly Rooms, Underbelly, the Stand and just the Tonic. Some fringe facts. The fringe is totally uncurated. If you can find someone that will rent you a space, you can take a show. It's as easy as that. However, getting an audience at the fringe is so fiercely competitive that room sizes are colossally scaled down from the size you'd see acts play away from the fringe. So a small venue is 25 to 30 seater. The vast majority of venues are around 50 to 60 seat. A 150 seater venue is considered big. And acts that might play Wembley will be playing one of the handful of 300 to 500 seater rooms. If you divide the number of tickets sold by the number of performances, you get an average audience of 27 audience members per show. If you consider that I am maybe 20% of the acts in any given year will sell out a run in a 100-seater venue or more, you can see that the reality is most people are playing to 5 to 10 people. Even if you do sell out your run, it's still really hard to even break even. Venue hire costs are around £4,000 on average. You need a PR at about £2,000 for the month, maybe another two grand in advertising, posters and flyers, around £1,000 in registration fees, technician hire, ticket fees, and finally you need accommodation for a month in a city that jacks its prices up so much during August that even a bunk in a shared hostel room with five other people and no bathroom will cost you £1,500. The average show actually loses around four grand. We do it mostly for the glamour. I only do it every two years, I can't do it every year. I can't cope with it. That's where I've been going wrong. But yeah, I just feel that the dynamic has changed. There was a time where the industry came along and there was an opportunity to, 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 to potentially massively forge your career. Absolutely. And I feel those, those opportunities are diminishing because we're in this point where I think TV is finding itself worried. I feel that the gatekeepers of TV are no longer taking so much of, of a risk on Newtown coming through. So, you know, people like John Kearns, John Kearns won, used to be the Perrier. Yeah. Again, I'll include that later. Um, but he won Newcastle, Best Newcastle, and successive years won the show. 
five, ten years ago, that would have meant he would be a major star by now. Reality is he's appeared in two BBC Three short films, only online. And there are people that have successfully brought and developed formats of shows, but the TV executives will only have that fronted by a small group of established acts rather than take charge of them. And so I feel that's where it's really changed most. And you have to weigh that against the Yes, and it's de- it can be devastating. Mm. 2010, I had a horrible year. The show was a bit crap, and <clears throat> numbers were numbers were good, but simply because I was on at eight o'clock at night in the underbelly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I then, I, I just, it was utterly just soul destroying. And I think, I mean, I do it every two years now simply because emotionally I can't cope. Yes. I can't cope with doing it every year. I just can't, can't cope with it. But it's interesting what you say. When people talk about going to the fringe, I'm quite intent, so I think is the word. Mm-hmm. I have every fringe brochure for the 10 years. And when I do my poster, I look through all of them, what colours work, mm-hmm. what's working in terms of, because posters are really important, aren't so they? desperately but I think not doing it every year is a good thing. I think it's too much. Because actually, I probably get more industry coming to see me at the Soho Theatre than I do at the Fringe now. Really? Well, I'm not a bright young thing anymore. That's interesting. You know. But I mean, I still love it. I still love the, I, I still love the idea of doing the Fringe. I just... I'm, I'm broken by the end of it. Absolutely. Not just financially, but just my brain is gone. This year was very, very dark for me. The end of this year's fringe was not a happy place. Exacerbated by my own mental yep. health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in many ways, the fringe is one of the most terrifying places to be if you have some sort of depressive disorder. Mm-hmm. Because whilst you can have moments of pure elation, the, the feelings of despair you get at the fringe are like nothing I've ever experienced elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the paranoia. Mm. I mean, if you're paranoid anyway, to be in the middle of the biggest comedy festival in the world, surrounded by your peers, who you think are probably laughing at you, even though, to be honest, they're too busy quarreling about themselves. You know, honestly, we're all so entangled in our own drama. I'm not sure anything No, I mean, but I think this is the problem, that you think people are looking at your reviews, laughing at you, all of those kind of things. So, I mean, the only thing I can do now is not look at anyone's reviews. I don't look at anyone's reviews. Because I don't want anyone to think that I would be doing the same thing to theirs. But it can be a very... What I did this year, uh, I booked a personal uh, trainer. Really? In one of the gyms in Edinburgh, because mm-hmm. exercise uh, is, has changed my mental health completely. Absolutely. And so I had a lovely uh, a Spanish personal trainer, a young young man, <laughs> and uh, he was very harsh. And I went three times a week uh, in the morning wow. and uh, did some deadlifting and some weightlifting and. Uh, what I did was every time I tried to deadlift mm-hmm. before I did it I would think of all the people I hated and everything I hated about the fringe and I would lift 
and by the end of a session, I didn't hate anyone anymore. That's extraordinary. Yeah. The whole thing was just really cathartic. Just absolutely focus all of the negativity into the act of physical exertion. And it completely changed my experience of the fringe. That's interesting. Yeah. And uh, it's been a difficult few months because I haven't been able to go. I've got a personal trainer in Glasgow as well. And I haven't been able to go because I've been travelling all the time. And I went, my first session back with him, I started crying. Because he was asking me to shoulder press some weight. Right. And they were very heavy and I just went, I can't do it. Because you see, to me, the thing I love about exercise is, when I don't think I can do it, I push through it. It helps me push through so when I'm feeling depressed, it's it's a similar thing. I go, come on, Calm. And, and I find myself, you, what you do is when you're weightlifting, you brace your core, so you go, Hup! and often, if I'm about to go into a meeting or do a show, I do the same thing. I go, and I get ready. What you've done there is you've created your own anchor. What you're doing is you're firing off an anchored emotion. Yeah. So, how I combated it was exercise. Mm -hmm. I got a nice flat that I lived in on my own, no one with me. This was before or after you married? After I was married. This is only the past two years I've changed my life. Yes. Lee, my wife, knows I'm depressed. And we had a good chat and said, right, we're going to have to change something. What can we do to change things? And my self-image is a big part of what it is. But also, I mean, I wasn't particularly well. I was smoking, I was drinking. So I gave up smoking, stopped drinking as much. And we thought, let's do some exercise. And it's great because we do it together, which is also a very nice thing. But feeling getting physically stronger has really helped. So I do a bit of boxing again. Punching someone in the face is an extraordinary experience. Yes. <laughs> all of the frustrations if it I was, feel. If it wasn't, people wouldn't do it. <laughs> all of the negativity that is in my brain, I get out in a positive way now. So instead of self-harming, and by that I mean smoking and drinking, yes. and I just punch someone in the face, and it's amazing. I do feel... To a degree, that's not just the class region. No. <laughs> it's... Our occupation, my, my occupation is sedentary. Yes. Absolutely. So, it, it's very isolated. Yes. Any negativity is internalised. Mm-hmm. And exercise, without question, has changed my life. That's interesting. Like hardcore exercise though, not pissing about in the gym exercise. Not with the gym, not that. A man shouting at me for an hour, making me cry, has changed my life. I think that's what's fascinating for me about that is that the, how, how visceral what you're describing is. Um, I think that's interesting that it's kind of... It sounds to me as if what people you're doing is, is making real, making physical the stuff that, that you're experiencing. Absolutely. Yeah. Nothing is marvelous. Absolutely. Yeah. And what it lets me do is defeat it. Yes. In a literal way. In a literal way. Yeah. And it is. But I also feel 
I was never the person. I was almost like, shut up, diet, exercise, food, whatever. And the exercise, I do try and watch what I eat. I don't drink as much. The drinking really, I mean, at the fringe, every other fringe I've been at, I, I was drinking every night, literally drinking every night. Even if it's just a couple of pints, you know. This year, not drinking. Do you know what it made? It made a huge difference. Um, so part of it is becoming quite dull, quite a dull person. A very, a very narrow definition of what to make someone interesting. Well, I think at the fringe though, you're expected to be some form of here, you know, and everyone goes, oh. I had an amazing night last night. It was out to four o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, I was in bed at 11. I was listening to a podcast about, you know, conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah. But I think allowing myself to do that and not feeling the pressure to be not an interesting person by other people's definition has changed things. I mean, that's the one thing that's come across to me today is. How self-aware you are, but, you know, the fact that you think so deeply and intricately about your career and the way you go through and the colours in posters and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly organised line for someone mm. who works in comedy. How much of that, I wonder, is... You, your, your father was a physician. I mean, that's a colossal generalisation. Yes. But a physician and an academic. Yes. Um, you then studied law, which is a notoriously difficult subject. Yes. How much of that is the legacy of, you know, growing up a father must therefore presumably be quite organised and uh, a career that's organised? Well, I think. Um, my dad, who's still with us, thank heavens, um, is, I mean, I would say pretty close to a genius polymath. Wrote his first book when he was 18 or 19. He was a transplant surgeon, an oncologist, um, you know, all that kind of nonsense. So, I'm not hinting I've inherited that part of him. But what he was was a workaholic. Um, so my dad's uh, dad died when he was nine, I think. When he was nine. When, when my dad was nine, his dad died. And he was the first person in his family to go to university. And he was brought up that work was the most important thing. Right? He doesn't drink particularly as a hot toddy when he's got a cold. You work, that's what you do. You work, you work, you work, you work, you work. And I think I have always seen that as the the normal way to be. He would work on a Saturday, he would work on a Sunday. You just work. And I think the difficulty for my wife is, I haven't taken a day off in 18 months. Uh, and she struggles with that, whereas I'm like, but this is just how you want, this is just how life is. Yeah. It's, not, it's, not a, it's not a structured decision, it's just that's That's just it. You know, so on a Saturday afternoon I'll do another book outline, or I'll do this or that, because my all I saw was someone working all the time. I think it's just 
I hate laziness in myself, not in anyone else, in myself. The worst criticism I can have of myself is that I haven't tried hard enough, I haven't done enough, I haven't worked hard enough. Which is why I go on 174 date tours and I write a book at the same time and I... Because the idea of not working is slovenly, it's lazy. That's an interesting choice of word as well. Oh, I know. If you forgive me, that feels very, very Presbyterian. Um, yeah. If you, if you yeah. see what I mean. Yeah, um, absolutely. I wasn't brought up in a religious household, but yeah. there are echoes of West of Scotland religion undoubtedly in there. Frippery. We shouldn't have frippery. We shouldn't complain about things, for heaven's sakes. Get on with it. Good Lord. Yeah. I would never have suspected that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you clearly have drive, that's apparent. But uh, if you forgive me saying so, that, that feels like you're quite a martial yourself. Oh, God, yes. Oh, if there's one Let's thing. Be a sad, if, I'm if there's one thing that my my wife would like is that I, was, I would be less harsh on myself. Because I'm tremendously harsh on myself. And it is partly this. I mean, I don't, I don't mind it. It's what means that when I stay, I remember I, I was doing a gig somewhere, and I had to get back to Glasgow to film a children's BBC show, and I was being driven from the gig to the sleeper train, and I don't know what motorway we were on. Anyway, it went horribly wrong, so I thought I'm not going to be able to get the sleeper train. I couldn't get a hotel, so I phoned up my producer at Radio 4, Lindsay Fenner, and said, "Do you think my is there anyone in the Radio 4 building? Because I'll just sleep on the sofa." And she went, you can't do that. Come to my house and said, Bob, I've slept worse places than that. I'll just curl up. And they were like, you can't do that. And I was like, but what's the problem? It's somewhere to sleep, then you get up at five and you get the train home. So a lot of what I do is simply just getting on with it. And it is partly just my... It's not that I don't deserve nice things. I'll stay in a nice hotel if my wife's there. But if it's just me... Wow. It's just me, what's the point? Wow. Oh, Susan, treat yourself. Well, <laughs> treat yourself. Well, well, it's like I buy... This is going to make me sound really strange. If I find a top I like, I buy five of the same top. Let's be fair, I do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I buy a pair of shoes. My wife buys me my shoes. Because I don't really need shoes. I've got shoes. The one thing I would really like... <laughs> This is a very strange story. When I was younger, uh, on the drive to school, I used to see a man in his garden and he had a train that he sat on and it went round his garden. And all I've ever wanted is, I'm, I'm quite obsessed with model trains. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Into a hobbyist level. Well, I don't have any anywhere to put them, but I go to. But I, yeah, I've got a house now. That, so you must have a spare room. If, if by this time next year you haven't spent some of the fruits of this intensive. Yeah. Work ethic on a table full of Bombay. I'm going to be very disappointed. Well, what I'm wanting to do uh, is put one in the garden. Classic shed or, or uh, a train in the garden. A, a train in the garden. Right on and I'm going to build 
it's going to be themed so Easter there'll be an Easter one on Christmas so like my niece and nephew can come up for the Halloween oh ghost God, train and, yeah, yeah I know oh, great. so we can have a small scale or like a ride on one a ride on one I'm hoping for a oh ride on God, one God, yeah, that would be amazing but apart from that there's nothing I need to spend my money on but you don't need anything else if you've got is, a ride on train in your car my wife and I and I know, I'm not saying this is because we're Scottish but we we went to the bank for the mortgage uh-huh. And the bank said, because obviously it's slightly difficult getting a mortgage when you're a self-employed idiot. Well, yes. And the uh, the woman at the bank said, right, so what are your debts? Uh-huh. And we said, well, we've got a mortgage. Uh-huh. She said, and what else? And we said, that's it. Uh-huh. She said, sorry. And I said, no, we don't buy anything until we can afford it. That's very old school. I didn't say Yeah, that. it's old school. And the two of us, if we need a television, we save up. We buy a car every five years in cash. Yep. You know, we don't have car loans. And we set, and we own everything in the house. And it's a very... One of the reasons I fell in love with her is she... That's how I think of And it's quite, a, it's quite again, a Presbyterian Scottish. Well, if you can't afford it, then there's no point buying it, for goodness sakes, then you don't need it. And I think we're quite similar in that, in that way. Uh, and I approach things... As I say, it's not that I don't deserve luxury. But at the same time, you know. Yeah, and there's something, there's something I think very old school about doing comedy. Just you in a slightly shitty B&B doing a show. I'll be honest, I like that. Yeah, that's, that's what touring is, I think. Yeah, so... I, I quite it makes me feel like I'm properly doing my job. Yeah. You know? Because it's very easy for this not to feel like a job. Yeah. I would imagine less so for someone who's drinking to you. Yeah. I am quite lazy. Left my own devices. I will be quite lazy. But I because I have a commercial background like you, I've always got an eye to to the, to the, to the budget sheet and what do I need to do to make it cheap. But with me it's less driven and more oh gosh, I suppose better. <laughs> No, I'm. I've got everything planned out till 2019. That's amazing. So, the 2019s, 2019 is planned already. Well, one would say some spontaneity in life might be interesting. Oh, really, literally, yes. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. But, so we'll finish the tour in June 2018, 2017. Write a book in the autumn of 2017. Preview gigs 2018, Fringe 2018, book comes out 2018, tour 2018, 2019. So until summer 2019 is booked already. That's insane. Yeah. So the tour starts in January? February. February. Never start a tour in January. No. No one ever has any money in January. No one ever has any money in January. I tend to take January off. But you probably don't. No, I've just got a job hosting a new documentary for BBC Four, so I'll be doing that. I was meant to take January off, and then something came up. I know. I've got I've got two weeks off in April from touring, and I've just. I'm filming another show. Yeah. <laughs> Sometime in July we'll go away. Yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine, it'll be fine. Um, so two starts in February till June. Going all over the shop. How many dates on the tour? Less than before. That's good. Because I, I, I was in a bit of a state after. I find it from the back here, but it's kind of, it's one of those things where you're absolutely fine doing it the second you stop. 
all the things you're just putting off mentally, physically, just hit you all at once. I, I just slump. Yeah. The thing is, there has to be a point where I'm actually at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it's a quite a crucial thing because if you're in a relationship and you're not there, you function as two separate human beings. Yes. So when you go home after a while, my wife's used to making decisions, and I come in and say, "Oh, why don't we do that?" And she gets not quite rightly annoyed because I, I I've not been there. Yes. So I've been running this shit. Yeah, exactly. And then you come back and say, "Oh, oh, is that what we do now?" Um, and last time I did the tour. I, I gigged up till 15th, 16th of December and that was very depressing. You know, even now, there's Christmas trees in the corner and you're on your own in a Premier Inn. I know so well. And it's lonely, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, for me, this time of year, I do a lot of corporates and exactly so. And kind of, there have been years where kind of every Wednesday to Saturday in December yeah. I've been away from home yeah. going for a bit of corporate eating far too many Christmas dinners and literally in, in a travel room. yeah yeah you upgraded this time I, I loved I loved the fact that you decided having spoken to you today that you decided you needed a better hotel than the travel what I do <laughs> on tour is once once in a while if I'm there for two nights, I'll book myself a slightly nicer hotel. So if I'm in Birmingham for two nights, which I am, I'll try and book myself something. Do you know what it is? Do you know what the main problem is? It's finding something to eat. Yes, because so, every you don't want to eat before you do the show. Everything's closed by the time you're finished. Yes, and so if I'm there for two nights, I try and, and also the, if you're in a premier and the time restaurant bar doesn't open until six and often yes. you have to be away by that point doing a sound check. So I try and book someone that has room service so I can actually eat about three o'clock in the yep. afternoon. So occasionally I'll treat myself to a nice-ish hotel. I'm going to try and find hotels on tour that have a gym. Yes, of course. So I can... Attempt to attempt to lift some weights, um, and I think just because I haven't, it was it's weird getting mentally ready for six months of a tour. I love my house and my wife and my cats, and it is a physical wrench. It's going to be even harder when I've got the moon now. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because it's. That's going to be awful. Yes. What are you going to do to gear yourself up for that? Um, you, seem, you seem to be a woman who is very much taking charge of her life and her thoughts in the last two years. Mm-hmm. Here's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I neither of us imagined we'd be doing this on a podcast, but what are you going to do to make that less painful? Um, well, what I have to do is, uh, for a start, we take only two or three weekends out of four. So I'm not away every weekend. I watch box sets, very specific box sets. So the moment I'm really watching Grey's Anatomy, which, if you don't know, is a very lightweight American American uh, medical show, casualty but more attractive. And everyone in the show is beautiful and lovely, and they fall in love, and it's gorgeous and sexy and amazing. And I watch The Good Wife, which is a gorgeous and mexy American sexy show. So I watch very specific television shows that are lovely and lightweight. You nearly said frivolous then. No, yes, I did. (laughs) And it's kind of frivolous. It's kind of frivolous. (laughs) So I watch very specific 
television shows and anything with 26 episodes of series and I just and I rewatch the thick of it or I rewatch something that's familiar that's familiar to me that's not challenging so I can tell you the thick of it off by heart but I'll rewatch the thick of it or 2012 almost or like a meditation almost like a meditation yes and it's on in the background and it reminds me of home and it's um, yeah yeah so I do that and I just I, I get myself into a, an absolute determined physical mindset of getting through it as I say it's like weightlifting I leave home on the Friday and I tick, I, I tick things off you know so I've got countdown clocks on my phone and I just say get through it just get through it and I you know Hopefully. I've got to film the montage scene for that now. <laughs> and hopefully the shows will be more enjoyable because people are coming to see me because they know who I am as well. Yes. So what always makes a tour difficult is if the shows are difficult. Yeah, totally agree. You know what it's like. I do. If you're lonely and you have a bad show. Oh, there's a few things worse. Mm. Things. Um, so, Kitson does a lot, which almost unrepeatable bit about it um, in one of his shows, uh, the one about dancing. Yeah. He, he does a bit about kind of how horrible it can be. Yeah. Uh, when you're when you're you're away, you've had a bad gig, and you're in, in a lonely hotel room. There are a yeah. few things as horrific. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's it, a glamorous job, and when it? you walk out, my worst thing is always when you walk out past audience members who haven't really enjoyed the show oh, God. and they just stare at you and you're like you, you feel like going I'm very, I'm very sorry about I'm very, I'm very, I'm very sorry about that so, so uh, ask me about breakfast then yes good the breakfast questions earlier you you, you burned ketchup and one of the one of the things that on this podcast we're quite obsessed with is my friend my best friend from childhood Matthew claims that putting anything other than brown sauce on a cooked breakfast is inexcusable. Right. In fact, in fact, he's even quite sexist about it. He says he will allow make exception for the fairer sex. Right? He says. Well, that's nice to know. No, yes. Mm-hmm. It's very poor, but there you go. Um, but um, but um, the tomato ketchup is tantamount to pouring orange juice on your breakfast. That's what he claims. Okay. He's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would always have ketchup on my breakfast, but I had beans, so I didn't need the ketchup. Oh, if you've got beans, you don't need the ketchup because you've got because your tomato you've sauce. Tomato exactly. Um, and sometimes if people make their own beans, the ketchup will clash with the beans. No, like here they have homemade oh, beans. Yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Not at home, I'm, I'm not an idiot. Um, my wife will only have cheap brown sauce. It has to be cheap brown sauce. <laughs> like as in salt and sauce? Yes. Because she is from Edinburgh, and just to explain. Of course! In Edinburgh, on their chips, they have salt and sauce, which yes. is a watered down brown sauce. In Glasgow, we don't have such average. No! If you ask for salt and sauce in a Glasgow chip shop, they know you're from Edinburgh and you shouldn't do that. Never do that. You can't get salt and sauce in Glasgow. I didn't know that. No, it's an Edinburgh thing. So that's how you can tell if someone's from Glasgow or Edinburgh. 
Well, that, that and the accent. That and the fact that people from Edinburgh are cheap, obviously. Yes. Um, <laughs> she says everyone from Glasgow doesn't wash, though. So, um, <laughs> so uh, we have a lovely relationship. I, I, so, do, I do love Petty Bob. Oh, absolutely. So she'll, she'll only have brown sauce, and I will only have ketchup. Because brown sauce, there wasn't brown sauce in my family because we were from... Glasgow, and we didn't have brown sauce. Interestingly, I, I did one of these with uh, Christian Talbot recently. Yes. And he said that uh, it's not really a big thing in uh, the Republic of Ireland because it's HP. And it's actually a, it's actually a, a hated English government oh, thing. Oh, really? Yeah, people didn't buy it because it's got the person of Parliament would say. See, we always had... Uh, I was quite. Do you know Daddy's brown I sauce? Love Daddy. Daddy's my brown sauce of preference. Isn't that a curious thing, Daddy's brown sauce? Yeah. I remember that from when I was younger, and it's a pic, it's a weird picture of a guy with a kid. It's like yes, it's a. It's quite creepy, a strange. It? Yeah. It's quite a strange. Thing. I, I think it's very firmly a product of the seventies. I, I think we, so. we all know what went horribly wrong there. Absolutely, but uh, I always buy my wife an own brand. She only wants own brand because the cheaper you the better. No, but she, it's hard. The cheaper the better. If I. Buy her brown sauce. She then it down as well. No, she doesn't. But I don't know why cheap brown sauce. Apparently, my point is, it ketchup is fine. Look, I'll have a bacon roll with mayonnaise. I'm sorry, that's beyond the pale. Yeah, I'll have a bacon roll with mayonnaise. You know, because uh, we never really had fried breakfast in my house. That was going to be one of our things, did you not? Uh, no, uh, in the winter we had ready break. For that glow? For that glow. Big pot of slightly burnt milk. My main childhood <laughs> memories are slightly burnt milk. Ready break in the winter and Weetabix in the summer. Weetabix? Weetabix. Weetabix, of course, is of course portable porridge, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> so, but breakfast was, I, I, I mean, I love, I love, I think breakfast is um, amazing. And I always wake up starving. And since I kind of changed, I went to a hotel and they gave me yogurt and granola and I almost threw it back at <laughs> And then I had it and thought, oh god, this is quite nice actually. <laughs> so I started having like yogurt and granola and I, stuff I like that. Yeah. Yes. So it's like, oh, I'm not that person. Oh, this is alright actually. I quite like this. Yeah. So I now, because especially if you're travelling on a train, it, oh. it's important to have a good breakfast because there's no guarantee there'll be any catering on trains exactly. yes. at all. Yes. My favourite breakfast I've ever had and I, I often think about this breakfast I was in America working in America and I went to uh, is it uh, Waffle House a Waffle House yeah. and I had an American breakfast and hash browns fried eggs ba- you know American when Americans do their crispy bacon streaky bacon it's oh. see, the, see the, this is it there's a secret apparently what they have is they have a wonderful they have a weight they put in the griddle Put on top that of it. presses down the bacon. They keep the weight. Yeah. Like an iron. Like an old school. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. your grand granny might have had. And they put it on top of it. Yeah. Effectively, it's ironed bacon. Ironed streak of bacon. Well, it's magnificent. But everything is cooked on the same griddle. Mm. So the pancakes, taste of the bacon, taste of it, and the hash browns were amazing. And I'd put butter with the pancakes yes. on the side. And I, it was about two in the morning because everyone, we went to the waffle house after we've been out clubbing in atlanta that was in my younger days and i have never tasted anything as beautiful in my, my life best breakfast also in america a yeah place uh, there's a uh, a little resort called occidental just north of san francisco 
and basically the entire uh, entirety of San Francisco be canned to Occidental at the weekends for brunch at these right. two restaurants there, and neither of the major these restaurants I can remember, but it's a tiny, tiny little resort. And the queues go on forever. And we've just been advised, you will have to queue for an hour and a half, but do go. Right, okay. And we did it. And it was just astonishing. My son was 14 at the time, and he nearly had a meltdown at the sheer volume of choices. Yeah. <laughs> he was just yeah. paralysed by breakfast yeah. choice. <laughs> the first time I realised that America was better than us at breakfast, and I'm sorry, I still believe they fundamentally are. I stayed in Provence town which is a small lesbian enclave in Cape Cod. And I stayed at this hotel and we went for breakfast out on the terrace. Oh my God, out on the terrace, looking out onto Cape Cod. And I'd never had waffles. Because why would you have waffles? Yes, we never had waffles. My, 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 my partner likes waffles, but I think it's, I think it's a curious uh, European affectation. Yes. Waffles, whipped cream. Whipped cream for breakfast. There is no better thing. I remember sitting there going, and it was like, uh, apple would smoke bacon and stuff. And I had never... I'd never experienced anywhere that took breakfast seriously because, to yeah. be honest, breakfast was just, it was just breakfast. It was just something that you had. It was the one you endured because it was either cold or warm porridge. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Whereas this was, this was a celebration of yes. amazing food. And, and I, I've always attempted to find somewhere. There used to be a place in Glasgow that did diner breakfast and it shut down after about six Which months. Proper American, proper American hash browns. Because hash browns in America are like grated, it's grated yes, potato, it's, it's not, it's you know. Like, um uh, Swiss roster. Absolutely. Yeah. With loads of butter and salt and everything on it. And it shut down. And that, but that's the only place I've found since. Yeah. I've, I've found nowhere in the UK that's even come close. No. It's, it's, it's a lost dream to me. Yeah. I, I, feel, I feel I'm not brave enough to go back to the States at the moment. Although California is, is actually applying for independence. <laughs> I say apply, but there is a movement for California to see itself from the, uh, from well, the Federation. Well, I mean, London, London said they wanted to do that after Brexit, yes. didn't they? Yes. It's a curious... I think if I was gay, I am gay, but if I was gay in America, I would be quite worried at this precise moment in time. Any minority. Any minority. Any minority. Actually, even if you're a woman, actually, not even mind yes. a minority. Yes, that's true. Uh, because... Donald Trump's not really the problem because he's just a fool. Mike it's Pence. Mike, Mike yes. Pence is a yeah. terrifying Mike Pence, is, Mike Pence is not a big fan of people having control of their reproductive organs. No, and he believes in uh, conversion therapy for gay people, yep. which is just horrifying. Absolutely. I mean, we used to do things. We did that here mm-hmm. into the seventies. You know, psychiatric treatment for yeah. especially gay men, because us lesbians always got away with it. <laughs> Under, are you claiming that you're an undercover guest? <laughs> it's funny because I was talking to someone. We, it was, I think it was 1968, they decriminalised homosexuality. Yeah. But that was for men because, of course, we were never criminal. Was never criminal. No, because, you know, we were just very good friends, weren't yes. we, as the ladies? And so we were never really, because it was a criminal offence. Yeah. And because we could go under the radar. I mean, two women could live together. Yes, with no with, without. Without the whole kind of suspicion, whereas main, it was always that, you know, if you were a bachelor. It was such a patriarchal thing that, I mean, let's face it, what, the, what we're talking about here, the genuine differentiation is that men men felt threatened by fallacies in mm-hmm. a sexual relationship. Too many fallacies going on men. Mm-hmm. In fact, there are no fallacies in a 
Yeah. 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 But well, we could quite happily live our life as a spinster, a spinster couple travelling round in our tweets. They're such good friends. Uh, they all oh, aren't they lovely? They met at the hockey club. Um, that you know, and it's uh, it's much easier. You know, in fact, it became you know Margaret Rutherford, who was married, was the archetypal dressed as you would imagine a lesbian would in tweed with a tweed cape, and and those women, you know, they produced women's travel guides for <laughs> travelling companions which is essentially a guide to where to go to be able to have it off around Europe <laughs> yeah yeah there's, there's, there's like um, yeah but you could travel around me and my companion we're just here and you could let you could have hotel rooms together whereas men could never go and have hotel rooms together whereas we could because we were simply Two ladies travelling too harmlessly. Yes, absolutely. And they were rutting like pigs. They were rutting like pigs in the background. So it's quite a fabulous. I heard something very recently, which just reminded me of that there was a chap in America, a black guy in America, who produced travel books. They are. I think this is a pretty crucial time. I mean, what I'm trying to do is, on the tour I'm doing next year, one of the aims is to promote positivity and kindness. So, I've done my book about being depressed, and this is about, there's such negative rhetoric everywhere. So, for example, you know when the Conservatives won the last election? A lot of people on my Facebook page said, if you voted Conservative, piss off, defriend me, I don't want to annoy you. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's rather the wrong way to go about things. People vote, I don't think everyone who voted for Brexit's a racist. I don't think everyone who votes Conservative hates disabled people. Vote depending on your situation. I think that's true, but and I equally feel it's true to say that people that voted uh, for Trump, um, the attacks on, on minority groups wasn't a deal breaker. No, no, no. But I mean, there is, I, I agree, but to say that I'm not going to speak to somebody because they voted conservative to me. Yes, it's rhetoric. Now, most people in this country are centre. And we go left and we go right. And most of us would probably quite like to go left. But I'd like to think that was true. But the problem is, it's not the voting patterns, it's who's there. And fundamentally, if you don't like the person who's currently leading the Labour Party, which, um, yes, then, and you don't want to vote for UKIP, and you don't want to vote for the Lib Dems, then you might vote Conservative. Now, I am—I cannot say that if I was faced with an election in my constituency, I am not a Conservative voter. I'd like to make that very clear. This the very fact that you've said that you want to make it clear tells me that tiny chink in this argument of yours would carry on. No, if I was faced with—if I was faced with a decision, how I vote, I am 
left wing, without question, many years, the Liberal Democrats, because I wanted reform of the second chamber. That was my main thing was I wanted reform of the second chamber. I wanted a better voting system in this country. And they offered the, you know, as we have in the Holyrood election, we've got the single uh, transferable vote. It makes a huge difference. If you vote green in the Holyrood elections, it matters because they will get representation. So to me, the voting system in this country is entirely unfair. Voting green in my constituency in Glasgow in the Westminster elections doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. Whereas if you want to do that, you want to vote for the Women's Equality Party, or you want to, it should matter. Yes, I agree. So Lib Dems to me were absolutely what I wanted, and then they scuffed it with the referendum on the votes, and I thought, oh, sod the lot of you. Um, <laughs> If there was an issue-based thing in my constituency, if it was the Scottish, what are they called, Scottish Defence League, oh God, are, yeah, there's a Scottish Defence League, which is kind of, I think it's it's like the British National Party. Yeah. They, they put up a, one of my proudest moments, I love my wife, anyway, but she was walking down the street and there was someone, I live in a very mixed area, there was someone putting up a poster for a Scottish, I'm sure it's something like that, Scottish, whatever. Racists yes. were putting up a poster for a march they were having t- through our area, and my wife said, "Take that down right now." And he said, "No," and she said, "Take it down right now." And he said, "No, go away." And she said, "I'm standing here until you take that down," and she took it down. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, if I was in a position where I was voting on that basis, I would vote conservative. What I'm saying is that we can never be sure as to what the reasons are that people are voting. I am not a naturally conservative person. I disagree with the majority of the things that they do. I do not like their policies on disabled people or benefits or anything like that. What I'm saying is that we are entrenching ourselves in positions. I think you're right. I think and we're becoming critical. Yes. And so I don't know why someone... I voted Remain. I'm a passionate European. A lot of people in Scotland voted Brexit. You know, yes, 62% of us voted for it. But there was still a huge amount. There was almost a million people who voted for Brexit in Scotland. Why? I'd like to know why. I'd like to know why, but I'm horrified. I, I, I have a suspicion that I might be horrified by the But if we are horrified by the answer, then we understand what it is. Now, if it is, as, I, as some of us suspect immigration, then we say, okay, uh, how are we going to deal with this? We have got so, we are entrenched in our positions. Uh, whether you like truth or not, uh, in a way, it doesn't matter whether or not a politician stands and, and lies about things people are voting exactly anyway. But how are we going to do it? Now, this is where I think we come in. So, on a very fundamental grassroots level, if I'm touring in Brexit areas, if their concern is immigration, I'll go to that area and and talk to them about immigration and say to them the fact of it. We have to start. If no one believes You're what's right, on the television, start, we have to start somewhere. Yes. Yeah. We have to start somewhere. Right. Absolutely. I think this is the most exciting time possible to be a comedian or an entertainer travelling around the country because we, we finally matter again. That's incredible insight. There's a terrible temptation for everyone to sit around and moan and put things on Twitter. Mm. I remember after the Brexit votes, it's when it was a joke, and I don't understand the results. Everyone on my Twitter feed wanted to remain. And that's the thing. You know, and all these people, even on the left wing of the party, have their meetings. Oh, good for you having a meeting. Good for you having a meeting in an area where people agree with what you're saying. And actually, all of those things you've said, I understand. Everything. I, I, I get it. But 
we can do if we want to do it is to for start I just want people to be kind if you voted conservative I do not hate you I do not hate you I don't know why you voted it it's the same as where people used to hate me for being gay do you know what I mean? It's, it's a lack of understanding. So unless we start to talk to each other and understand and empathise, we're going to end up, as America is, with deeply entrenched positions of two... So what I'm saying, I want to understand people and I want to understand why... So in Scotland, why is why are the Conservatives the second biggest party now in Scotland? Yes, that makes no sense, does it? Yeah. No sense whatsoever. So, so if you'd said to me 15 years ago that the Conservatives would be the second biggest party in Scotland, I would have said, you're an idiot, you're an absolute fool. Yeah. People in Scotland will never vote Conservative. Yes. And they are. I, I, have, so, I have theories on that. Again, it's, it's, the same, it's the same solution and the same result that, that you've come down to, which is, I think that the all-pervasiveness of neoliberalism has changed the, the Overton window so much that conservatism appears to be uh, a viable option for people that 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And I think, I feel quite inspired by you there, Cameron. <laughs> I think but it's, you're you right, know, it's down to, yeah. down to us to, to change that, and we can't do that from the top up. I mean, no, you're right. But no one is, the, this, the, the internet has created uh, a swathe of false news of, you know, anyone can write a blog and it's the truth now. What matters, and it, it struck me when I did uh, my show in 2012 about equal marriage uh-huh. before it was law, and I did a show about why I wasn't allowed to get married and why I wanted to get married. And you know what? I think it changed a few people's opinions. I'm, I'm sure it did. Many so, people decided it. So, if we can go out and have a, a thing about, ki- about kindness yes. and about empathy and about what it is that's making people frightened because all that's happening just now is that people are shouting at each other over the internet and they are that is spilling over to the world and it's spilling over into our everyday you know life of course if i speak to you you i'm simply saying you as a theoretical you and you did vote conservative because you hate immigrants and you hate disabled people then we probably won't be friends but if you say to me well look i voted this because i don't agree with what the Labour Party is doing or in my constituency there is no point voting Labour because of blah 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 or I didn't want UKIP to get in or whatever then we have a discussion about it there's a point in which you can exchange ideas and concepts yes and there is also a requirement to have discussions about immigration we need to start talking about it and the Labour Party in order I'm so desperate because all I can see is another 10 years of what's happening. The last time comedy left a decent legacy was in the 80s. And that was because that was a time. So if you think about that time and the minor strike and the BBC were not broadcasting the truth of what was happening in the minor strike and so comedians went out and told people what was happening. That... That is what we can do. At yes. our at our core, we are travelling minstrels, yes. telling the stories from the previous town. Yes. yes. And that is what we do. For 90 minutes, I have people's attention. And what I want to do is say to them, as a lesbian feminist pro-Remain Scottish woman, 
I'm telling you that we need to sort some shit out here. And we need to not try, you know, whatever racism, whatever homophobia is bubbling under, stop it. Because, and, and so I, I actually feel this is the most empowering time. I think ultimately there are, we, we do live in a very different paradigm as the 80s. I think there was a far broader consensus that what was happening to the miners wasn't a good thing, whereas now, there, again, there's a consensus that unions are a terrible kind of thing. But even, I mean, this is the thing about finding out the information. So, unions are hugely important. Unions are hugely important. But again, if you say to a young person, they probably won't even know what a union is, right? And, you know, so I think it's all of this stuff, or if we have one ability, it's communication, now, whether it's stand-up performances or corporates or whatever it is that we're or podcasting about getting uh, through what it is that we want to say. And my fundamental aim is to try and change the language of the discussion from the negativity. If someone puts, if I see somebody saying about anybody apart from somebody who deserves it who's a definite racist or Nazi fuck off with your voting I will I, I that makes me incandescent with rage because that is the problem because then they say piss off you liberal and none of us are speaking to each other none of us are speaking to each other yeah. And then you see it in the Labour Party with Corbyn against yes. anti-Corbyn. Yes. And do you know what? There's no opposition. There's no viable opposition no, for no, a period we, there. We are completely lacking in it. I just, I, I actually think this is a very positive time if we want it to be. Yes. And a possible time when we can, we as entertainers and people who think deeply about things, to put forward a message that is more positive and I mean positive not in a wishy-washy liberal hippie way I mean I mean standing up for other people if you see someone being racist or see homophobic abuse to say that is not what we want here because at the moment people think they have a license to say things oh god yes the word that for me most sums up 2016 is emboldened yes the people that would say you can't say what you think anymore feel that they can absolutely and actually it's not that you can't say what you think it's just that thankfully the last few decades, people have said, well, you can say what you think, but don't expect us not to challenge yeah. you on it. Yeah, I think my main message for 2017 is that I've decided to stop apologising for not hating. Because often I go, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm not a racist. I'm so sorry for being left-wing. I'm so sorry. And the thing is, they don't apologise for hating me yes. or us. So I'm going to stop apologising for it and say, do you know what? I don't hate you. Do you know what? I don't. I don't hate you because you're from a different country. I actually don't hate you because you're a conservative. I don't. Do you know what? Uh, and I think it's about stopping being apologetic. You're right in terms of the way things have shifted. For a long time, we were in a left-wing country where if you were left-wing, you were in charge. We are now. We are now not the minority, but we are the minority voice. And so we have to stop apologising for being. I'm not hating people and for being all hey guys welcome welcome to the country you know hey i don't hate you you're a valuable member of our community yeah i think that's 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 actually quite inspiring thanks thanks
Oh my god, guys, how inspirational was Susan Cowman? Massive, massive woman crush. Um, she's amazing, isn't she? You should go see her. Susan's on tour at the moment. In May, you can see her on the 12th at Winchester Theatre Royal. On the 13th, Worcester Huntingdon Hall. The 19th, York Central Methodist Hall. The 20th of May, she's at Oxford at the Northwall Arts Centre. The 21st, Colchester Mercury Theatre. In June, on the 2nd, she's in North Finchley at the Arts Depot. The 3rd, she's at Tunbridge Wells Trinity Theatre. The 4th, she's at Keswick in the Theatre by the Lake. On the 15th, you can find her at Cardiff at the Chapter Arts. The 16th, she's at the Pavilion Arts Centre in Buxton. 17th, the Hartford Centre. 23rd, Margate Theatre Royal. 24th, Bury St Edmunds Theatre Royal. 25th, Cambridge Junction. 26th, Greenwich at the Greenwich Theatre. 27th, the Salisbury Playhouse Theatre. You can also find out more about Susan Cowman at www.susancowman.com. I've got a whole bunch of show notes, which I'm going to put up at breakfastclubpodcast.co.uk. There'll be stuff to look at, stuff to listen to, stuff to read. I think you're going to really like it. Guys, if you're enjoying these, please, please help us spread the word about it. You can do that by tweeting about it writing about it on Facebook, grabbing your friends, stealing their phones and making them physically download the podcast. And it would really, really, really help if you would subscribe to it, write a lovely five-star, really nice review on iTunes, and then we can keep doing this. I've got some great things coming up. Come and join me again for breakfast. Bye!